Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale, the law firm where real estate really matters. Hello and welcome to Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale. I'm Fiona Larkham and I am the team's professional support lawyer. I'm joined today by John Bosworth, who is a partner in our planning team. Our conversation today is about Section 106 agreements and why they are still relevant. John, I'm going to start by asking you if you could explain to us why Section 106 agreements are still so important, when many of us were expecting that the government's planning reforms would abolish them some time ago. Hello, Fiona. Yes, that's right. The original intention was to replace both Section 106 agreements and the community infrastructure levy with what was to be a nationally set infrastructure levy. However, the planning reforms are currently on hold, as there was quite a backlash on several fronts. The present Secretary of State, Michael Gove, has paused the reforms, pending a review by him of the proposals, so we don't know whether they will go ahead at all. As regards the retention of Section 106 agreements, many people commented that they should be kept, as they deal with much more than financial contributions, and they provide a flexible tool for dealing with many development issues. So I'm assuming that Section 106 agreements are going to be here for the foreseeable future, and that's probably just as well. For one thing, a lot of authorities haven't adopted the community infrastructure levy. At the last count, only 138 out of 333 had done so. So that means for nearly 200 local authorities, Section 106 agreements are the only means of collecting developer infrastructure contributions. Particularly, now that the cap on pooling contributions has been abolished, many authorities have reverted to using Section 106 agreements to collect infrastructure funding. Elsewhere, Section 106 agreements are used by some authorities to plug the gaps in their charging schedules, and almost everywhere, they're used to cover matters beyond just the collection of financial contributions. So, just by way of background, John, can you remind us what Section 106 agreements are primarily intended to do, and when is it that a planning authority is entitled to impose them? Yes, well, the law is pretty wide on this. Almost invariably, these agreements are used to secure certain requirements before planning permission is granted, those requirements being things that can't be secured by planning conditions. Section 106 itself in the legislation sets out what they can do, which is to restrict the development or use of land in a specified way, or to require specified operations or activities to be carried out on land. They can require land to be used in a specified way, or they can require payments to be made to the authority. On top of this, Regulation 122 of the SIL regulations imposes a test on when they can be taken into account before planning permission is granted. And for that to happen, the Section 106 agreement needs to be necessary to make the development acceptable in planning terms. It has to be directly related to the development in question, and it also has to be fairly reasonably related in both scale and kind to the development. Basically, this is to stop planning permissions being bought and sold. And by way of contrast, John, how are Section 106 agreements then different from community infrastructure levy obligations? Well, the key here is the flexibility of Section 106 agreements. With regard to community infrastructure levy, uh, once an authority has adopted its charging schedule, it then has almost no discretion in how to apply that schedule. So new development has to pay the rates of SIL that are set out in the levy, often all of it up front. And if that happens to discourage development, then so be it. They don't have any flexibility. On the other hand, Section 106 agreements are highly flexible, 
and they can be tailored to the individual circumstances of different sites, and they can reflect the economic circumstances at the time that they're being applied. It sounds as though that inherent flexibility is one of the key attractions then of Section 106 agreements. Is that changing the way that they're being used? Has that changed over time? And perhaps you can say a bit about how they've typically been used in the past. Yeah, indeed. Historically, I'd say they have been used for seeking financial contributions to pay for infrastructure, for example, new roads or improvements to roads, schools, health facilities, and other transport improvements, such as the provision of new bus services and public transport infrastructure. They've also been used to secure the provision of affordable housing and to require particular tenure types of affordable housing, uh, such as uh, housing to rent or shared ownership. And historically, they've also been used to regulate the provision of open space. They can require it to be laid out, to be made available to the public, and then for the open space to be either managed long-term by the developer or transferred to a public body, usually with a dowry to pay for its future management. And how have you seen that change? Well, whilst all of the things I've just mentioned still tend to be covered by Section 106 agreements, um, other than where the authorities adopted SIL, so the financial elements would be uh, covered by SIL, I've noticed that authorities are increasingly turning to Section 106 agreements to achieve a variety of environmental and social policy objectives. For example, we're once again seeing more office development come forward, as much of the older stock has changed from offices to residential under permitted development rights. And where office developments are coming forward, uh, local authorities might now use Section 106 agreements to require a number of things. Firstly, affordable workspace, which they will require under the agreement to be made available to small or local businesses at a reduced rent. They're requiring things like employment and training plans, which require the provision of opportunities to local people for training, both during the construction and operational phases of a development. And they're also requiring things like servicing and delivery plans uh, in order to coordinate and minimise uh, vehicular trips to the building so that occupiers have to coordinate both their services and their deliveries. John, that sounds like a really interesting development in how Section 106 agreements are being used. Could you perhaps give us an example, maybe in a little bit more detail, about how a particular policy objective is typically translated into a detailed set of Section 106 obligations? Yes, of course. Let me, let me take another example, which applies to new student accommodation particularly in London, where the London plan uh, sets out detailed policies for the provision of affordable student accommodation. This is something uh, relatively new. It's only been happening for the last four or five years. And basically, the agreement will spell out these requirements. So for private sector sites, at least 35% of the student accommodation units will have to now be provided as affordable student accommodation, and if that can't be provided, a lower figure has to be justified to the authority on viability grounds. And then the agreement will spell out that at least half of the units, including all of the affordable ones, have to be subject to what's known as a nomination agreement uh, with a higher education provider that allows that provider to nominate students uh, to take the spaces. Uh, the agreement will then spell out that nominations have to be made 
in favour of students most in need. And then the agreement will also cap the maximum rent that can be charged for the affordable accommodation. And presently, that's set out at being 55% of the amount that students can be loaned each year for their living costs. So all of that gets set out in an agreement to deliver the affordable student accommodation. So, you know, alongside affordable housing, obviously, the really big issue that's on everyone's mind at present is climate change. I think it's clear to all of us that the built environment is going to have a huge role in the necessary shift to net zero. Can you say a bit about how Section 106 agreements are being used in that context? Uh, Yes, again, uh, carbon net zero is on everyone's lips. Uh, Many local authorities are using Section 106 agreements to help achieve that. There's a number of things that uh, I see them putting in these agreements. Firstly, carbon net zero obligations. Uh, So a developer will be expected to achieve carbon net zero. They'll submit with their application an assessment of the likely carbon impact, and then that has to be reassessed both prior to construction and post-occupation to see if the building is actually achieving the targets that the developer said it could. If there's a shortfall, then the agreement will require financial contributions to be made towards offsetting schemes so that the building does achieve net zero. Uh, Another example is similar energy performance obligations. Again, quite often the developer is required to submit an energy performance assessment as part of their planning application. That gets reviewed following the construction and occupation of the building, again, to make sure that the targets that the developers said they would be hitting are actually hit. And another carbon reduction thing, which has been around for quite a while, um, but it's still there, is the requirement for developers to have travel plans. And that's a means of ensuring that the occupiers or visitors to the development do their best to do so by using walking, cycling, public transport, and uh, doing whatever they can to cut down on individual car use, so that, again, carbon is minimised. Well, John, I think you've made a really good case there for explaining to us all just how useful Section 106 agreements still are. But before we finish, let's just assume that Michael Gove does go ahead with legislation and we end up with a national infrastructure levy. What would be the position then for Section 106 agreements? Uh, Well, Fiona, whilst I think it's highly unlikely that the government will come to that conclusion, if they do, I think they'd have no option but to provide some sort of mechanism for ongoing non-financial planning obligations. So uh, whilst uh, the money could be dealt with under that uh, national infrastructure levy, there's going to be an ongoing need for Section 106 agreements in terms of all these other things we've spoken about. They literally have so many other uses that their entire abolition would be neither necessary nor desirable. Well, John, thanks for sharing all that experience with us. I do hope uh, Mr Gove comes to you for your advice when he has to make his decision. And I look forward to catching up with you again once we know which way Michael Gove's going to jump on this. Fiona, thanks very much. I've enjoyed chatting to you about these agreements. Thank you for listening to Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale. I hope you'll be able to join us again next time. Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale the law firm where real estate really matters.